Boar's Head is bringing a slice of Japan to the deli. Introducing Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. Tender, slow-roasted chicken breast, coated in our signature teriyaki glaze, where ginger, garlic, and a hint of brown sugar meet for a flavor that's both sweet and savory. New Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. The bold flavor of Japan, now at the deli. Only from Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome to Crime Wire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host, Delilah Jones, and I will be talking with Dr. Ellen Graytech, Director of Bioinformatics at Parabon Nanolabs, Inc. in Reston, Virginia. Dr. Graytech received her B.S. in biology from the University of Virginia in 2005 and her Ph.D. in evolutionary biology in 2011 from Harvard University, where she was the recipient of a prestigious National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship. She completed a one-year postdoctoral fellowship in bioinformatics at the Institute for Genome Sciences at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Graytech has been at Parabon since 2012, where she serves as scientific lead for the Snapshot DNA Venotyping, also AFDIL Kinship, and Compute Against Alzheimer's Disease Project. Dr. Graytech, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you, Denny. And for our purposes today, we'd kind of like to concentrate on the Snapshot uh, program. And I was wondering if you could start out by giving the listeners an overview, uh, in hopefully easy to understand terms, of, of exactly what Snapshot is. Yeah, absolutely. So at its most basic level, what we're doing is predicting a person's physical appearance just from DNA. And the reason that we can do this is that all the information for what a person looks like is encoded in your DNA. So if you think about your family, Things like eye color and hair color are passed down through your family. And the reason for that is because you share DNA. So that means that there are pieces of DNA, it's just sort of a code that actually determines things like that eye color that you see in your family and your hair color. And then from our perspective, it's just a matter of finding them and actually turning them into predictions. So we try to see DNA in a very different way than traditional forensics. Usually in forensics, you're thinking about DNA as just a pattern, something you can use to match a sample from a crime scene to a known suspect, or you can run it through a database looking for matches. But there's so much more information in there. There's all of that genetic information that actually encodes your appearance. So what we've done is we basically start from a huge database where we know, let's say, people's eye color, and we have all the genetic information, and then we're just zooming in and finding what are the pieces of the genome that are telling me that that person has blue eyes and that one has brown eyes. Well, Dr. Wow. Gray, could you 
again, in layman's terms, can you explain what exactly is phenotyping? It's, it's a long word, a scientific word that maybe our <laughs> listeners just really don't understand. Yeah, absolutely. So phenotyping is just predicting a phenotype. So a phenotype is any trait. So like eye color is a phenotype. Hair color is a phenotype. And phenotyping refers to specifically predicting those traits just from the DNA. And we focus on those traits that are what we call heritable. So when we talk about a heritable trait, we're talking about something that's pretty much entirely determined by your genetics. And a heritable trait, you can think about, if you think about identical twins, what are the traits that they always share? So identical twins share 100% of their DNA. So if they always share a trait or a phenotype, that means that that trait is heritable. So things like eye color and hair color, but something like body weight, you could have identical twins, but they could be very different body weights. Even though there's some genetic component, there's a huge environmental component. And we're not going to be able to predict the kind of lifestyle that someone lives, so we focus just on those traits that are purely written into the DNA. So if if I'm understanding this correctly, Doctor, um, you can, or the technology, the, the snapshot, can take the DNA and form, uh, well, actually it would be basically a composite a drawing or a photo of what the person, uh, be it the suspect or maybe if, you, maybe if uh, unidentified remains were discovered or that type of thing, and, mm-hmm. and actually create a, a picture of what the individual looks like. Yes, exactly. So that's the application. And I'm really glad you brought up unidentified remains. So those are the two main applications of this. So can you imagine a case where you've got DNA? Let's focus on first the investigation. Um, so we've got DNA at a crime scene. And let's say there are no witnesses and you have no suspects, or alternatively, maybe you have some suspects, but you've tested them all, and none of them match that DNA. You've still got that DNA sample, but it's not helping you solve the case. And what we're trying to do is generate new investigative leads, and the way we do that is by producing a composite. And if you go to our website, uh, snapshot.parabon.com, we have a composite gallery, actually two composite galleries. One is example predictions and actual photos. And so these are some examples of predictions that we've made on people for media. So these were, you know, maybe a water bottle that was sent to us that we swabbed, got the DNA, and analyzed and predicted those phenotypes. We predicted those traits blindly. So we didn't know who these people were. So um, you'll see the composite that we produce, we combine all the traits that we predict. So we do eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, and the shape of the face, as well as ethnic ancestry. We put all of those together into a composite, and then you can see the actual photos. Those were revealed to us after we made those predictions. And so that's how we're helping I mean, this is the, the composites are great, but it's really intended to be an exclusionary tool because we don't know the age of that person. I mentioned body weight earlier. We don't know the weight. Those can have huge effects 
on the shape of the face, on the appearance, you know, someone shapes their eyebrows, you're going to see them very differently, even if they have the exact same face. And so that composite is merely a representation of someone who matches our predictions. It's not intended to be a driver's license photo of the person. So we really try to focus on excluding people, using it to narrow a suspect list, but it's not going to point to a single person. Uh, but this can also be really useful for unidentified remains. So even if you have a skull, the reconstruction that you do, you won't know the pigmentation. You can tell some information about ancestry. You know, was this person white or were they Asian uh, from that skeleton? But that's about it. Then you can tell the shape of the face, but did they have blue eyes? Did they have blonde hair? You don't know. And so we can combine the information from the DNA with that type of reconstruction in order to help identify that person. Well, Dr. Graytech, how large of a sample does it take to come up with the composite that you're describing and, and how old of a, uh, a sample would still be viable to do this? The DNA technology has come a really long way. So when this type of analysis, uh, this type of genetic analysis was invented back in the 80s, they needed you know, a big drop of blood, a lot of DNA. These days, they can get DNA from you know, a blood speck so small you can't even see it, or from someone just handling an item or drinking out of a bottle. You don't leave that much DNA behind, but the technology has become so sensitive that they can pick that up. And so we've worked with very small quantities of DNA. Uh, we typically ask for what we say is two and a half nanograms, which in scientific terms, but what that really is, it's one billionth of the mass of a penny. So it is a tiny, tiny amount of sample. And from that, we're able to read, we read about a million points on that DNA. We don't use every single one of them. Like eye color might have 500 of those points that are contributing to that color, um, and thousands of them might contribute to ancestry, but we put them all together uh, in, into this prediction. And as for age, it really depends. So the oldest case that we've done is 45 years old. That's, that's pretty old uh, for a <laughs> DNA sample. I mean, that's, that means that they collected that <clears throat> DNA sample before DNA analysis was even possible. So it's all just about how the sample was stored. You know, is this DNA still in good condition? But uh, if you've seen in the in the popular news, they've sequenced DNA from Neanderthals. Those are you know 500,000 years old. So it is getting more and more possible to do more and more distant, older and older cases. Uh, so we do a whole range. We have some cases, like I mentioned, that are 45 years old, some that are 30 years old. Uh, we'll, we'll also do cases that are active right now, you know, someone who is actively assaulting people. Doctor, how old is the Snapshot program itself? Is that – I never we've heard of it before. Okay. It's, it's very new. So we've been developing it for about five years. So it was originally funded by the Department of Defense. So they were interested in 
if they find a DNA sample on an unexploded IED, could they tell some information about who put that there? And so they asked for companies to come up with ideas for how to solve this problem, and our company uh, won that. And so we started that about five years ago, and it only became actually available to law enforcement um, at the end of 2014. So less than a year and a half that it's actually been available and used in casework. So it's still we're still um, finding that we'll, we'll go to a lot of conferences and um, you know homicide investigator meetings, and there are a lot of people who still haven't heard of this technology because it is very very new. So the the word's just getting out. Yes, still still but getting out. We find yeah. that people really are excited about it. Um, you can imagine these investigators. A lot of times, the cases that they come to us with are the ones that have been hanging over their department for 20 years and have been passed down from detective to detective. And they want to be the ones to solve it, but without our information, that perpetrator could be anybody walking down the street. And our information lets them narrow that down to a much smaller number of, of possible perpetrators. Now, you mentioned the... Uh the fact that certain lifestyle or environmental things such as body weight and so forth uh, mm-hmm. uh, can't, can't be determined. Um, what, if, what if there's a case of where there's a, an eyewitness, for example, who, who has done the, 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 the police sketch artist has done a composite based on that? Is there, is there any way to kind of merge your findings with the, uh, with the eyewitness account to... To develop something, or are they new, or are they totally exclusive? No, we absolutely do that, and those are really interesting. Uh, what we try to do is to not know anything about that witness statement before we make our predictions, so that we are as objective as possible. But we have a forensic artist on staff. Like I said, that we don't know the person's age or weight, so our default is a prediction at the an age of 25, you know, a young adult and at a body mass index of 22, which is sort of the middle of the normal range. And, but what we can do is then take the composite that we've produced and then age or weight progress that uh, because we also have to choose, for example, a hairstyle. We predict you know, if this person has blonde hair, we don't know if it's short or long, and those can really affect how you interpret a face. And so that's why we say it's not intended to be a driver's license photo. But... If you do have a witness statement that says, you know, he was wearing a hat or he had a ponytail or, or anything like that, we can combine that information with our prediction and produce what we call a blended composite. And what we find is a lot of these cases, um, the investigators might have a witness statement, but they're not sure if it's correct. You know, maybe it's from someone who is very young or it was a long time ago and you're not sure if they remember it well. And our information helps them determine how much weight to put on that. If we verify the same information that they got from their witness, then they can put more stock in that. And they've also got the extra, what we call the genetic witness, in addition to the eyewitness. So the fact that there is already uh, a, a wit- an eyewitness uh, type sketch or information 
uh, does not uh, rule out using snapshot. In fact, snapshot can enhance or disprove, if you will, um, uh, the original eyewitness statement uh, or corroborate it and enhance it. Sure, yeah. I mean, snapshot isn't going to be the right choice for every case. If you've got a great eyewitness, maybe you don't need snapshot. Uh, The really good cases where snapshot can be used are those where you have a large pool of suspects, but potentially a limited pool of suspects. For example, uh, we worked a case recently where the perpetrator had gotten a phone call during the assault. So they've got a list of a few hundred people whose cell phones were within um, the span of that tower at that time, and they need a way to narrow that down. Uh, Another one that we worked on, they've got, you know, it was a, they know the perpetrator was a a student, and they've, so they had originally 1,700 people that they were trying to track down to collect DNA from and compare to the sample, and it was just, was too many. They couldn't, I mean, they were getting hundreds of DNA samples and it was just not getting them anywhere. And our information allowed them to narrow that down to you know, fewer than 250 people. And suddenly that investigation became possible to pursue. Oh. Um, you know, I, you were talking about uh, a few minutes ago about the, the, the size of the sample necessary and so on. And mm-hmm. um, I, I watched some. Uh, true crime TV shows uh, not too long ago, and uh, they showed the the police officers, the detectives, uh, uh, trying to get a DNA sample, and what they would do is they'd uh, pick up cigarette butts, for example, that Mm -hmm. uh, a suspect had handled, or steal the coffee cup (laughs) uh, out of a restaurant (laughs) that the suspect had had used uh, to have his coffee. So uh, apparently there are like you say that they just don't and with the technology advancements they don't have to have like a vial of blood to to do the to get the results they can have a lot um different methods of collection and much smaller amount yeah so we've done these analyses from you know a cigarette butt from a mask that someone was wearing um blood spot uh, we do lots and lots of work from sexual assault kits, uh, so all different types of samples, and those will all yield different quantities of DNA, but typically they'll yield enough. I mean, really the only time where we can't work with a sample is if it's, for one, you know, really, really old and wasn't stored correctly. They have to be frozen because DNA, I mean, it's a, it's a biological molecule, and over time it'll it'll break down. So it needs to be stored correctly. And sometimes, you know, if there wasn't that much to start, they might have already used a lot of it, and so there might not be enough left. Uh, The other is that a lot of times forensic samples are mixtures. So if you swab, you know, a a doorknob at someone's house, there might be two people's DNA or more on that, and it can be very difficult. Uh, I mean, we work with lots of mixtures, but if they're, if the person you're interested in is only a tiny fraction of the DNA there, um, it becomes really, really hard to get a good read on them. You know, uh, 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 sorry, Denny. 
if a, if a local law enforcement agency wanted to take advantage of of your services, um, how would they go about doing this? And do they do they need to submit just a case on a case by case basis, or do they sign up and they can use it on any case they like? Hmm. Great question. So Snapshot is offered as a service. And so the typical workflow is someone will submit an inquiry through our website saying, you know, I have a case that I might be interested in. And what we'll do is we'll work with the investigator and with the DNA analyst who actually has the DNA. Because um, those are usually separate. The lab is separate from the investigators. And so we'll work with them to determine, do you have a good sample? Is this appropriate for our, our analysis? And uh, so we'll do a, sort of a sample screening. And then uh, if it's good, we will analyze the sample and produce a report, and then we brief the investigators. We typically give them uh, about a 45-minute to, to an hour briefing on their report that says, here is exactly what we found, and here is how you use it. Because what we really don't want is to just deliver these reports in a vacuum. So what we find is that those composites that we put on the last page People will just flip right to that. <laughs> and the composites are really interesting, but like I mentioned, what if that person has has shaved their head and, and weighs 600 pounds? They're going to look very different than what we've produced. And so that's not where the significant information is. The significant information is, you know, for example, we can say with you know maybe 99% confidence that this person doesn't have blue or green eyes. That's the really important information. You know, so look through your suspect list and anyone with blue or green eyes, you move them to the bottom. And that's the approach that we want investigators to take. So the information, uh, the composite is just a portion of it. You need to read the whole report to get an understanding of, of how you came to certain conclusions and and, and what the report actually means, rather than just jumping to the picture. Yes, absolutely. So the snapshot composite is just a part of it. It's just a, a representation. And every prediction that we make comes with a confidence statement and is made in a range. Uh, because some uh, traits are very difficult to distinguish from each other. So, for example, what about dark blue eyes versus light green eyes? Those might look very similar from a genetic point of view, and we can have a hard time distinguishing them. So we're, what we're going to do is just exclude, and that's what we focus on is those exclusions. We might say we can't tell for certain whether this person's eyes are blue or green, but we know for sure they're not hazel or brown or black. And now you mentioned that the... Um you are contacted by the law enforcement agency, and then you you talk with them. In addition to the usually the laboratory, the the, the entity in possession of the actual DNA, um, which means a private family. For for example, we deal with a lot of cold case profiles mm -hmm. on, on crime wire. Um, a, a, a survivor uh, of the victim's family couldn't just call you up or go to the website and say, I want to become a client, uh, your dealing would be with the police agency and the laboratory in yeah, possession I mean, of the, the DNA. Is, right, yeah. The challenge is that we need access to that DNA, to that original evidence that was collected, and that's going to be held by 
the lab and the investigator is going to be, I mean, it's going to be limited access. We can't just sort of march in and say, give me that shirt from that case and we're going to swab it. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but we have worked on cases that have been sort of prompted by uh, a victim's family where they've told the investigators, like, we want to do this, this new kind of analysis. And so they have been able to, I mean, usually the investigators are, are happy to have a new way to get leads on their case. So um, it usually works out well. So if, if our listeners, if any of the listeners are, are the victims, uh, survivors of a, of a homicide victim, for example, and, and the case is cold, and they think the snapshot technology may um, serve to advance the investigation, what they would need to do is make sure their police agency, the handling agency, is aware of snapshot. If not, they would bring yes. it to their attention and then uh, request that the police agency contact you or the lab and uh, and get the ball rolling. Is that how it would work? Yeah. And then what we usually do is we'll give a briefing, you know, make sure that they understand um, exactly what this technology can do and understand the science behind it, sort of the, the stuff that I gave you at the beginning. We try to make sure we communicate that um, and then uh, we also give out sample reports that show, you know, here's the kind of information you'll be getting and here's how you would use it. Uh, so that's usually the first step. And then when people are convinced or blinded with the science, uh, we, uh, we move forward with them. Well, what about the ancestry portion of your services? Now, can um, individuals use that service as well, or do to just determine their own ancestry, kind of like what they offer on Ancestry.com? And if they can, mm-hmm. is it different than what Ancestry.com is offering, and how so? Uh, so the Ancestry portion is, is very similar. We use a similar approach to what those other services do. Uh, we don't offer it to private individuals. Um, just generally, we're not doing it at the kind of volume that someone like Ancestry.com or National Geographic is doing where they, you know, they can get really good discounts on their, uh, the actual DNA analysis um, because they're doing thousands of them, whereas you know, we're doing one at a time, so it's, it's not really cost-effective. And so we're really focusing on um, the, the investigators and, and for the, the purposes of, of police investigation. Uh, the ancestry is really interesting uh, because, I mean, we're, we talk about a gene that makes you have blue eyes. There isn't a gene that makes you European. It's sort of the other way around. It's the fact that your ancestors migrated into Europe and were, you know, sort of genetically isolated there that has defined your DNA or, you know, whatever part of the world you're from, uh, because we all originally came from Africa not that long ago, only about 50,000 years ago. And from there, people migrated out across the world. And just through random change, as over time, you're going to get random accumulated differences between those groups. They're not 
meaningful. Like I say, it's not a gene that makes you European. It's just the fact that Europeans have been isolated from other groups for thousands of years means that there are some signals of ancestry that you can pick up in the DNA. And so we try to uh, focus on ancestry as a whole. So we're, we're not just thinking about European versus Asian versus African. We're thinking about Northern European versus Southern European versus Western European. And we recognize that many people are not just European. They might be three quarters European and one quarter Japanese or something like that. We want to be able to pick that up. So we've built our whole ancestry analysis to make sure that it allows for those kinds of things that I mean, we might not have seen before but we want to be able to pick it up. And so our ancestry gets very, very precise and picks up those kinds of, of mixtures and, and regional information. You know, I'm uh, actually kind of flabbergasted by, by these uh, technologies that are available today. And you mentioned like one case you had was 45 years old. Um, mm-hmm. We talked to, to people routinely and in some cases, uh, you know, the, obviously the longer the case drags on unsolved, um, it, it might seem that the, the chances are less of ever getting a resolution. But uh, if you look at the technological advances, that really isn't true, is it? In fact, as as these advances take place and, and uh, come into the uh, arena, some of these cold cases that may have seemed unsolvable at one point uh, may be very solvable. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, between this, I mean, the type of analysis that Snapshot is doing where we're, you know, giving people an idea of who they should be looking for, there's also um, kinship testing that they can now, you know, determine someone's relationship so someone, uh, so maybe the perpetrator isn't in a database, but maybe their brother is, for example. Um, so that's another kind of new testing that they're uh, using in some states. Uh, and then the challenge, of course, with cold cases is, I mean, even if our snapshot composite were perfect and were the driver's license photograph of that person at 25, you know, we don't know where they are now, and that can be a real challenge. Um, and then, of course, you know, our the snapshot composite isn't going to be exactly perfect, but it is going to give a lot of information, and it gives um, the investigators a place to start. So we have some some really interesting cases. Uh, so also on our website, under the composite gallery, there's a published police investigation. So most of the cases that we do, the investigators choose to keep that information private. They use it internally prioritize their suspect list and they don't want the person to know that the police now know this information about them. Uh, But some decide to go public and say, we're looking for someone who matches these predictions, these trait predictions. And so we have a bunch of posters of those on our website. And uh, some of them are very interesting. So you can actually see the the 45-year-old case there at the bottom, and uh, let's see, we've got a skull reconstruction. That's really cool. This is uh, this case from Anne Arundel County, Maryland. They they found a skeleton in a trash can, and have been that was in the 80s. And they've been searching since then, trying to find this person. 
And so our forensic artists did a reconstruction, and we also predicted the person's traits, and we did a blended composite. So, And this was very interesting because this fellow had very unusual teeth, whereas when we're predicting faces, the face data that we have is from, you know, college students, the people who have probably had braces and have sort of normal, the normal range of facial features. So things like these really unusual teeth wouldn't necessarily come up in our predictions. And so the fact that we had the skull and could blend those two pieces of information gave this very interesting composite. Um, another one that we worked on was from Louisiana. And this was very interesting because uh, the victim, she had most recently been seen uh, with a group of Latino males, and that was who she had called most recently. And so the whole time, it's been about six years that they've been working on this case, they've been looking for a Latino male. And we did our prediction on the DNA sample they sent us, and it comes out as a Northern European guy with blue eyes. <laughs> so all of that time, they've been looking in this group that seemed like the most likely suspects, and it was incorrect that so we redirected that investigation in another uh, direction just based on the information that we found. Um, doctor, could you give out your website uh, again? Because uh, apparently there's an awful lot of good information on there and, and people <laughs> who are interested in learning more should visit there. Yeah, it's snapshot.parabon.com. Uh, also, if you Google just snapshot DNA, it'll, it'll be the first, first result. Do you think there will ever come a, a time where uh, cold cases are kind of a thing of the past? I mean, do you, do you think technology will ever reach the point where we won't have the number? And I, I know people don't think about it all the time, but there are an awful, awful lot of cold cases out there. And uh, yeah. do you think they'll ever reach the point technologically where they will be less uh, frequent? I hope so. I mean, you mentioned all of the advances in technology that there have been recently, and I do think that those can make a huge difference. Like, imagine, like think about the amount of difference that it's made just having the DNA testing, the DNA matching, and the databases uh, for being able to solve crimes that were committed by someone who's previously committed a crime. And now... Uh, we've got all of these new ways to get information about the person who committed that crime. So if up front, let's say from the first time that investigators realize we don't have witnesses, we don't have suspects, we need some more information, they do something like snapshot. They get an idea of who they should and shouldn't be looking for, and that suspect list narrows down to 5 or 10% of what it was originally. Suddenly, that case doesn't have to go cold. Uh, absolutely incredible. Why? Um, well, I, I know that when the, the listeners uh, who have uh, cold cases out there uh, pending uh, will be very encouraged to hear about Snapshot and the other advances because uh, – you know, you, I guess you can lose hope after a while when, when year after year after year goes by and you think that the 
there is no hope at all for you than to get some news that there are advances and that there may be some light at the end of the tunnel. And I've never thought of uh, a lot of times people will use the term closure, that that Mm -hmm. people want closure. I'm not sure I like that term. I'm more thinking of resolution. You know, when you've lost a loved one, I don't know if there's ever complete closure to it where you just move on like it never happened. But Mm -hmm. uh, but resolution to know who, what happened to your loved one, you know, and why and who and that type of thing, I I think can 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 be very uh, beneficial to the survivors to get that type of information. And uh, and bring some resolution as to, as to what happened to their loved one and why. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what we're hoping to do with Snapshot is to bring that renewed hope, you know, for those cases where there really was no information left, they don't know what to try next. Now we give them a place to start. And doctor, did you say that? Um, I don't know if these are on your website or, or whether. Uh, the, the sample reports are something that after you're contacted to the requesting agency could uh, you could send them a sample report so they could get a feel mm-hmm. for what what they would get uh which is it now is i uh is it something that just anybody can can go to your website and get or does it need to be a police agency that's considering using your service well, so we have a request info link on our website, and basically what you do is you figure fill that out with your information and then uh, you know your email address, and then we you know, we we do get the occasional inquiry from the oddball, so we don't just automatically send it <laughs> out. But if you're uh, <laughs> genuinely you know interested in this, then we will you know approve that request and send you that information and follow up with you on, uh, you know, how we can work together. Beautiful. Uh, Delilah. Yes. <laughs> I uh, think you know, I was... once, this, once this episode airs, I think you're going to be inundated with calls. <laughs> I think that, um, <laughs> you know, our listening audience is made up of a lot of people that are still searching for answers and and still searching for justice. And this seems to be one of the most promising avenues that I've heard about in a long time. Well, I really hope that we can help them. It's so rewarding to be able to talk to an investigator and hear that sort of light bulb go off of, oh, my gosh, now I have a place to start. Now I I can know who I need to be looking at and suddenly this case doesn't seem impossible anymore. Uh, Doctor, how tough is it to be getting the word out? Now, you you know, you're a a very new program, or relatively new. Um, You said that, you know, you attend meetings uh, Mm. and so forth and get the word out, obviously word of mouth. Is that, is uh, there a specific way to get more people informed, is word of mouth the best way? Obviously, that's a good way, you know, especially from a satisfied uh, 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 customer or user of the service. But um, it, it, it seems like it's a very slow process. Am I correct? Or is it... Yeah, I mean, we've been trying to go to investigator meetings, so cold case meetings, homicide investigator meetings, 
uh, places where you know, these investigators are congregating and hoping to learn something new. And usually we'll get, you know, five minutes to describe what we can do, and, and that's sort of where we start. But, um, you know, it varies a lot, the quality of the, the conferences and things like that. And so, um, yeah, we just try to travel a lot. Um, and, and, and make sure that people are at least aware. You know, if they choose not to use us, that's fine. But we just want to make sure that they know that they have the option. If you you more or less keep the suitcase packed, right, and ready to go. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I do all the science, so I get to stay here at my computer and uh, and keep improving snapshot while the yeah. uh, the other folks go out. <laughs> Doctor, if uh... You know, through our uh, the Crime Warrior show here, we also, in addition to talking to uh, victim survivors, we, we also talk to the police uh, on occasion. Uh, if if any uh, agency was interested in maybe having someone uh, as a speaker to address a, a meeting or whatever, uh, we should also refer them to the website and they could make a request that way? Yeah, absolutely. We have a really fascinating training program that we do that teaches how to use this information and we do that based on this blind evaluation that we just did so we had um, 25 samples sent to us they were just labeled as subject one subject two subject three we made predictions on them and so we have those composites and those reports and then we also have their actual photos and we've turned those into little you know sort of driver's licenses that have you know their reported eye color and hair color and we do sort of a matching game but it's not you know match the face to the person it's prioritized given these 25 people who would you spend your investigative money on pursuing initially uh and that's people seem to really enjoy that so we do that at um, some conferences as well or um, at, at agencies And you said this was originally, the snapshot was originally a uh, uh, national security uh, uh, thing, right? Department of Defense, yeah. It was funded yeah. by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And are you still ongoing with them? I mean, do you still do stuff with the Defense Department? Uh, no comment. <laughs> Okay. So I mean, we uh, we work with any investigator who is is looking for more information uh, on their case, okay. and so some of those are federal, some are state, some are international. Uh, we work all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, cold cases and unidentified remains certainly aren't unique just to the United States. Or <laughs> very <have> true. Another... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Doctor G, this has just been. Uh, uh, a very eye-opening uh, conversation, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm really impressed with what what you folks do, and um, we will certainly on our end here get the word out to uh, to our listeners, and uh, and hopefully we'll uh, you know people will be as people become aware of what's available to them, uh, you'll be getting more. Uh, contacts and and more cases and hopefully uh, get some of these things resolved. Yes, 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for letting me talk about Snapchat. This is always so enjoyable. I just I love this this work that I get to do, and it's just so fascinating and rewarding. Well, we wish you the best, Doctor, and hopefully uh, as we go, uh, maybe you'll consider coming back again. Yeah, absolutely. It was great talking with you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you. And that's it for this episode of Crime Wire. Until next time, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next episode of Crime Wire. slice of Japan to the deli. Introducing Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. Tender, slow-roasted chicken breast, coated in our signature teriyaki glaze, where ginger, garlic, and a hint of brown sugar meet for a flavor that's both sweet and savory. New Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. The bold flavor of Japan, now at the deli. Only from Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere.